now at uh, 8.15 or thereabouts. President Moon Jae-in seems to have been building bridges with the US again after a busy few days of diplomacy that have taken him across the world quite literally, including a stop at the G20 summit in Argentina. To go over the outcome of his summit diplomacy at the G20 meeting and the prospects for the North Korean issue, we have Olivia Enos, policy analyst at the Asian Study Centre of the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. First and foremost, it feels like a departure for President Moon from his message in Europe recently when he was trying to get leaders on board for sanctions relief. This time, the the emphasis was very much on on the US stance, seeking not only denuclearization of North Korea, but holding firm on current punitive measures. Yes, I think that we've seen, you know, over, frankly, the past year and a half, uh, really the Moon administration and the Trump administration going back and forth on a variety of issues. You know, I think in many ways they're playing both sides of the coin. Perhaps a good cop, bad cop mentality could be applied here where North Korea, uh, or the U.S. rather, typically emphasizes the maximum pressure policy and President Moon is often offering enticements Sometimes it's for sanctions relief. At other times, it's just for additional opportunities for further negotiations. I think that it's interesting that we are, you know, still at this point, really, it seems like North Korea has been dictating a lot about negotiations, for example, refusing to meet with Steve Began, um, a lot of the prospective meetings with Secretary Pompeo getting canceled. And I think that this may lead South Korea and the U.S. to sort of need to go back to the drawing board and reconsider some some aspects of the strategy. We have seen some developments come out of that G20 summit. President Trump, for example, when he was on his way back from Argentina, where the summit was held, he, he told reporters on Air Force One that he did expect to meet Chairman Kim Jong-un in January in, or February early next year, in other words. We'd heard that before from the US, but it seems to confirm the plan now. Yes. So I think, you know, coming out of the Singapore summit, we really didn't get everything that the US wanted out of the Singapore summit. We certainly didn't get from North Korea commitment to complete verifiable irreversible dismantlement of its nuclear program. And there was next to no me- no message when it came to human rights related issues. In my opinion, it would be a significant mistake for the United States to go forward with a second summit, although President Trump, of course, is indicating that perhaps we will be going forward with this second summit as early as January. I think that if they are going to head into a summit, the emphasis needs to be on especially that verifiable bit of complete verifiable irreversible dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear program. And I think there needs to be a return to the language in particular of CVID to really press the North Koreans to put in place steps that can't be reversed and that are verifiable by the U.S. It's interesting because John Bolton, President Trump's security advisor, who normally would take a very conservative stance on this, um, a hawkish stance, he's been suggesting that almost the opposite, like the the kind of flip side of what you just said, uh, (laughs) that uh, President Trump will go into a second summit because North Korea has not held up the promises of the first summit. Um, Is that flawed reasoning? That I think that is really flawed reasoning. If you go into the first summit and you expected to get significant concessions out of North Korea and you really came back with an agreement that falls 
far short of anything that we saw in the six-party talks or in 1994 agreed framework discussions. Uh, and then you expect to go into a second summit and get more out of North Korea. This seems really untenable and highly unlikely. Now, the president does choose to emphasize in, in many regards the personal rapport that he and Kim Jong-un have. And sometimes his argument is, well, looks like the working level negotiations where real action should be taking place, where substantive steps have to be committed to by North Korea, are being foregone in favor of this sort of, you know, uh, love or romance between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think that Kim Jong-un knows that he can get a lot of concessions out of the president. I think he's less certain that he can get concessions out of Secretary Pompeo or even meeting with Steve Began. And so it may be the case that North Korea would much prefer this form of negotiation. But I don't think it's in the, the U.S.'s best interest to do so. Is it a little bit demeaning for you as an academic um, and an analyst to be hearing and having to even attempt to digest comments suggesting President Trump has this wonderful relationship with Kim Jong-un. I mean, even according to President Moon's office here, uh, we've had the quote recently that President Trump has a very friendly view of Chairman Kim Jong-un and (laughs) likes him. I mean, okay, that may or may not be the case, but does it even have any relevance? I mean, I think coming out of the Singapore summit, you heard President Trump make some pretty upsetting comments. He said, for example, Kim Jong-un, he's a man who loves his people. He's a smart cookie. Um, we fell in love. All of these types of comments seem to suggest a a relationship with Kim Jong-un, who we have to keep in the back of our mind, this is a brutal dictator, a dictator who has between 80,000 to 120,000 of his own people in political prison camps, and beyond that, has nuclear and missile capabilities that have the potential to threaten the U.S. homeland. This is not a nice guy who we're dealing with. And I think that a lot of President Trump's comments have the effect of normalizing Kim Jong-un and his relationship in a way that we shouldn't be viewing him. Kim Jong-un cannot be viewed legitimately on the international stage when he continues to possess a rogue missile and nuclear program and says he will wield it to threaten the U.S. and our allies in the region and when he's abusing his people in the way that he does. Not to mention, of course... If you knew anybody who said they met somebody else and had a very close friendship with them after one meeting or even two or three meetings, <laughs> you would probably question what on earth was going on there, right? I mean, <laughs> common sense. Very true. But, but, you know, I mean, that's where I sort of wonder whether it's demeaning to be fed these kind of statements. But it's better than saying they hate each other and threatening war, I suppose. Yes, definitely preferable to war. And I think that's what a lot of people are very concerned about is, you know, if these working level negotiations don't go well, and if we don't get to the point where we're having a second summit, are there going to be a return to the fire and fury like talks that, you know, we heard earlier, um, earlier, th- as, as late as earlier this year? And so I think that that is always a concern that's in the back of everyone's minds. Um, you know, many, many experts here in Washington and also in Seoul have pretty much universally condemned the idea of a bloody nose strike or threat. 
Um, and I think that hopefully we're not talking about returning to that. And, and I think that that's why it is important to say, you know, if for some reason we do go ahead with a second summit with North Korea, we need to go in with very clear objectives. And those objectives need to build on what whatever was limitedly developed at the Singapore summit to put, you know, meat on what were the bare bones of the Singapore communique. Another comment that I found quite intriguing out of Seoul recently was suggesting that um, Chairman Kim Jong-un may still even come to Seoul within this year. And of course, the, the clock is ticking. We've we, we got uh, less than a month till the end of the year. And I, I wonder how you would feel about that if, if that actually did happen. I think it would be really surprising if Kim Jong-un uh, ended up going to Seoul by the end of this year. I think that that would be a really fast turnaround, although certainly not unprecedented, because, of course, as we remember, the Singapore summit was called off, you know, a couple of weeks prior to the summit, and it still took place. Everything was pulled together. Um, but I think that if there's going to be a meeting, I think we need a concession prior to the meeting, perhaps North Korea agreeing to have those IAEA inspections or U.S. inspectors coming uh, to look at the nuclear facilities, or we need to see some sort of movement toward a, a partial or full data declaration, or maybe even some movement on the human rights front. Perhaps we could, for example, request that the UN or the World Food Program or the International Committee for the Red Cross gain access to some of these political prison camps. I think on either the human rights front or the security front or both, we should see some meaningful concessions out of North Korea, not the types of concessions that we've seen over the last several months that haven't really been much of a sacrifice for North Korea at all. A, a Seoul official was also quoted by Yonap as suggesting that um, North Korean chairman Kim Jong-un has done everything he said he would do um, this year, that uh, he hasn't actually <laughs> um, let anyone down. I mean, th th the thing is, from trying to play devil's advocate, I guess, in your case, because you've made it clear you're not such a fan of Chairman Kim, um, <laughs> to, would you... Would you at least grant him that, you know, he has gone ahead with summits in an unprecedented fashion and, and that perhaps he was given the wrong idea by President Trump about what denuclearization would look like and what he'd be getting in return? You know, I don't think that's the case. And I think this is a really, you know, important point to dwell on. Um, you know, coming to the summit negotiating table in Singapore was only a reality because North Korea has consistently broken international law and international obligations that it has agreed to uphold, including uh, those international obligations on nonproliferation and all of the various reasons why the sanctions are instituted against them. The U.S. can't just decide that it's no longer going to enforce the rule of law. I mean, North Korea consistently is violating the rule of law. It wasn't a sacrifice for, for, for Kim Jong-un to come to the table in Singapore. So I think we need to be really continuing to press North Korea. You know, some who would play devil's advocate would say, well, you know, Olivia, but we've seen these forward movements. We've seen uh, Pungeri and Dongchangri and all of these various um, facilities that have been dismantled. But if you look at the analysis and if you look at 
uh, Kim Jong-un's own statements at the beginning of the year. He said, we already have the capabilities that are so far developed, so far advanced, that we no longer need these capabilities anymore. That's not a significant sacrifice, and nor is it a deterrent to North Korea continuing to develop its missile and nuclear technology. And we've seen several uh, yes. reports, both from the U.S. intelligence and otherwise, that they're continuing to develop their program. Olivia Enos, thank you very much for your analysis. Thank you.